When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. Ashley, how are you doing? I'm doing well today, Fitz. How about you? I'm good. I'm a little bit sore from running, but oh, okay. <laughs> that happens. Are you training for anything right now or just running? No, well, I always run, but I am, I'm always, I usually during the winter, I get ready for a marathon. It just helps me get out and enjoy the rain and the dark in the middle of the Seattle winter. So it's my little motivator. Mm-hmm. I like that. It's funny. I've been thinking a lot about this word optimized. Um, we've been getting approached by a bunch of supplement and fitness companies lately. And I think because I visit their websites, now I'm getting a ton of online ads everywhere I go, <laughs> you know, for this product that will optimize or like, have you optimized? And, you know, part of it's like fitness, but I also, I have to hold it down with my family and work and friends. And I'm pretty sure I don't need to be fully optimized to my human potential to go have fun in the mountains. Like nothing is chasing me out there. You know, I've also seen a bunch of ads in my email inbox be like, is your business optimized? You know, because someone sold my email address at some point. And it's funny because I see this. I'm like, dude, my business is called Duct Tape Than Beer. It's clearly (laughs) not optimized for anything other than taking ourselves not too seriously. Right. So despite all of the messages from these like outside entities, you're clearly not convinced that being optimized is the most important. No. It's it's not working on me. We're laughing about it, Becca and I, and reaching your human potential is important. It's a valuable thing and a valiant goal that I think a lot of us are all chipping away at in our own ways. But I also think that, you know, slow walks in the sunshine, an ice cream cone with your kids, <laughs> those are pretty good things too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I totally agree. Like walks, ice cream, sipping coffee, basically anything that's not driven by accomplishment does seem pretty worthwhile if if you enjoy it. In like my therapy work that I do also, like I work with a lot of outdoor-minded people 
and they're used to pursuing and striving and reaching. And I can say that like allowing for those things that are not, well, I mean, optimized, it can be really uncomfortable for some of these people. And it's so beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. And Becca pointed out that there's even like a nastier edge to the optimization trend that seems to be hovering over our culture right now. You know, the underlying message oftentimes is if you aren't bettering yourself, you're somehow falling behind, somehow failing yourself. And it ties back to this kind of like lone wolf myth that we all have that, you know, if you aren't sort of out on your own, not in need of help, you kind of aren't winning, or at least that's how you win, right? And when you constantly focus on your own personal performance, it's easy to miss the support that you do get. Mm-hmm. You know, I think sometimes those support systems out there, they're almost invisible when you get caught up in the moment. You, you know, you just, you have an experience, you go do a thing, and it's hard to see that others have helped facilitate that. But when you take a moment and you stop a look around and recognize that support, it allows you to give back in turn, right? To do something that isn't just for your benefit, but for others. And that is like, I think, one of the crucial parts of being a community. Uh, Ashley, how did you come up with the idea for today's story? You know, I was at a local trail race um, with just cheering on my partner, Trevor, and our buddy, Grant. I wasn't running the race myself. So I just had this different perspective on the day and one that really just allowed me to like notice all this like constant love and support that just surrounded like every aspect of the race. You know, there's cheers and hugging and high fives and cowbells, all of it. And it dawned on me that oftentimes like we can do these hard things or even, you know, reach for that quote higher potential because we have people that help us. Yeah. There's the the saying that if you want to go fast, you go alone. If you want to run far, you go together. Nothing happens without each other. And no place in the outdoor space might that be truer than in the trail racing community, particularly for like the long races that are out there. Uh, it turns this very modern idea of optimization on its head. I mean, yes, technically someone wins, but that certainly doesn't mean that everyone else lost. And realistically, none of it happens without dozens and dozens of people showing up to create said race. No one can win if someone doesn't give time. So today we've got a story about the inner workings of something I think a lot of us take for granted, races. Chances are at some point you've signed up for a race or an event, whether that's a local turkey trot or Western states. You sign up, pay your money, get to work training, or not. And then you show up surrounded by others and you set out on an experience that is both very personal and very shared. It's this wonderful interplay between participant and organizer. And for the racers, a lot of times it almost feels like magic. You show up, you put your heart into the moment, and then you leave. But there's so much more to it. Hard work, vision, community, a legion of volunteers, and a little bit of love. I'm Fitz Hall. And I'm Ashley Langholtz. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries.
It's 5.30 a.m. in late October, and the sun hasn't come up yet. I grab water, snacks, and a small pack, and I put on my running shoes. I'll be on my feet all day. I drive out to a trailhead just outside Fort Collins, Colorado. About 375 runners are gathering for the Blue Sky Marathon and Half Marathon. After I park, I shuffle foot over to find the team of volunteers I'll be joining today. I'm interested in seeing race day from a different perspective, from the organizers, the staff, and the volunteers, and to answer the question of what does it take to put on a trail race. The job of a race director is to make a race happen with all the moving parts that go into that. To me, races are about community. It's a time and a place where I like to say I'm uh, spending a day in the woods with 300 of my closest friends. This is Brad Bishop. He ran his first ultramarathon in 2009, and two months later, he volunteered at an ultramarathon. The trail and ultra running community is just very, well, community driven. And everyone who runs also volunteers. There's no way the races happen without it. I have found that when you volunteer for a race versus when you run a race, the joys and the highs for me are pretty much the same. You you get the same amazing experience, same um, just energy of the community. But unlike running, where inevitably in most races, you're going to have a pretty low point, you don't get that volunteering. The, the floor is higher. I, I like volunteering at a race as much, if not a little bit more than actually running a race. Brad's volunteering turned into leading other volunteers, which turned into joining the race day staff and getting paid. In the summer of 2017, Brad quit his office job and worked weekend to weekend, contract to contract, piecing together race staff jobs around the Rocky Mountain region. He wanted to see if he could support himself financially by working races full time. After a year and a half, the answer was no. Uh, $300 a weekend? 40 weekends a year does not equal a full-time salary. And it was right at the point where I was trying to decide, okay, what comes next? What's next in my career? One of the organizations I'd been working as event staff for, NAR Runners, one of the founding partners transitioned out. The other founding partner asked me if uh, I was interested in buying in and becoming co-owner. And They were one of my favorite organizations to work for. They're right here in Fort Collins where I live, and it was pretty much a no-brainer. Like, that was, to me, the point where I decided race director is my career. And uh, basically a dream job. The the luckiest people in the world get to do what they love and make a living from it. And I'm very happy to be one of those. Brad joined his business partner, Nick Clark, in early 2019, and has been a full-time race director with NAR Runner since. And that's NAR as in gnarly. Brad co-directs six trail races for the company each year. He also helps with about 16 other local races and running events, including preview runs for some of the longer races, volunteer barbecues, and the Turkey Donut Charity Fundraiser. He's a busy guy. But still, I wondered, what exactly does a race director do? Generally, the first thing you have to do is come up with an idea for a race. Or if you have an established one, figure out when it's going to happen. Brad then contacts the land managers that oversee the trails to start the permitting process. As you might imagine, this is typically not a fast process. 
but the sweet spot for attracting marathon runners is about three to five months out. This means Brad often has to open registration for the race before having the permit in hand. He's built good relationships with local land managers, which he says helps the process and his nerves. He then starts filling key staff positions like aid station captains and lead timer. Most of NAR's races are established by now, and many of his staff come back year after year. Brad also starts working on a supply list. He's got things like food for the aid station, food for the finish line barbecue, everything from banana pepper rings for the post-race burgers to roughly 230 gallons worth of powdered drink mix, and also hand sanitizer, sunblock, safety pins, and of course, race swag. He's also accounting for tables, tents, stoves, coolers, cooking utensils, iPads for timing, and the PA system. They store most of their gear and supplies in a local garage that they've aptly named the Naraj. This is a garage, I like to say, it's like someone started building a house, and halfway through, they're like, eh, garage it. So it's it, two stories tall. It has heat and a bathroom with a shower, but it has cement floors that slope into a drain and three large garage doors. It is a fantastic, unique space. I've never seen anything like it. We are so lucky to have it, and that is where we base our operations. Brad spends the six days leading up to the trail finalizing all the details he spent months organizing. On Monday, typically I'm doing a full inventory and packing everything that we have on site. Tuesday is shopping day, filling in all the things that we still need. Wednesday is timing day, so hopefully finalizing the entrance list, getting all of the timing software up to speed, uh, all the lists and paperwork that's needed, it's a full day's worth. Thursday is handoff of all the supplies. So the aid captains come who are hauling supplies out, get their things, other errands that need dropped off, getting things staged. Friday is packet pickup. So folks who come and pick up their race swag, their bib number, and get everything so that they have one less errand on race morning. There may be a bit more on Friday, but generally I try to keep it as clear as possible so that the runners get my attention and their space if any last-minute emergencies come up. On Friday, the course also gets marked. They typically try to mark the course as close to the start as realistically possible. For Blue Sky, uh, my partner Nick is in charge of marking. He goes out the afternoon before. So he has lunch, he dons his backpack full of tape and flags, and he hits the trails and he runs the entire course before the sun sets and it's ready for the morning. On race day, Brad, Nick, and aid station leads get all the gear, food, and supplies to the race location. Brad estimates it takes about 60 volunteers to make a race like today happen. Anyone can put out a jug of water and a table of basic goodies. And, you know, it would only take one person to do that. But we like to operate on what I call the concierge system. Depends on runner numbers and traffic, but uh, to me, the gold standard is every runner has their own personal volunteer while they're at the aid station. Someone's cooking the food, someone's keeping the coolers and table stock, but most of the volunteers are there to be personal buddies with the runner while they're in the aid station, get what the runner's asking for. We have a wonderfully experienced volunteer team that generally they know what the runner needs better than the runner themselves, and they can make suggestions, uh, recommendations, help the runner prevent issues before they happen. 
And Brad speaks from experience. His running resume is extensive. He says the highlight is doing the Grand Slam, and he's done it twice. So that would be in the same summer, the Western States 100, um, either the Vermont or the Old Dominion 100, the Leadville 100, and the Wasatch 100. Makes for a fun summer. Nick and I only want to put on races that we would enjoy running ourselves. And both of us have run at least 50 ultras, if not more. We've seen a wide gamut of, you know, how races are put together. And these are the ones that we've enjoyed the most. So these are the ones we want to put on. A little before 7 a.m., I heard commotion near the starting line. Marathon runners stack up along a narrow section of trail. The PA system isn't set up yet, but that's no problem for Nick. I walk to the aid station I'll be hanging out with today, and I'm introduced to the concierge team, as Brad put it. I first meet Elise McDonald, the aid station lead. She's warm and welcoming. The Mile 9 aid station volunteers get busy setting up. Thirteen volunteers came out today for this aid station alone, seven adults and six kids. Many know each other from past races or from past volunteering. Some are new and meeting others for the first time. Every volunteer gets a task. Elise is skillful in her delegation of tasks. So we can start just filling like a thing of chips, pretzels. One table is set with all kinds of snacks, sweet, sugary, and salty. It sort of looks like my inner child's dream table. Because of that, I'll let seven-year-old volunteer Cody Hornley tell you what they had for runners. We got gummy bears, candies. We got some like lots of stuff for the runners. Uh-huh. What are you doing? I'm recording maybe for a podcast. What's a podcast? Podcast? Well, it's like a story that you listen to. Mm-hmm. Like on Spotify maybe? Like where you listen to music? Yeah, like you like record the old sounds. Mm-hmm. But you don't record the movements? Yep, just the sounds. Are you still recording? Uh Uh-huh. About 45 minutes after the marathon start, Nick starts rallying half-marathon runners. He talks about the course and which flag color to follow to stay on the correct route. As the runners line up, loved ones line the trail. All right, guys, let's hear it. We're going to do a 10-second countdown. Brad, are you good? I'm getting away from our timer, so here we go. We're going to do 10, and then it's on go. So here we go. 10! Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, go! Not long after the first marathon runners arrive at mile nine, volunteers call out bib numbers as they arrive, and it's documented and published for split times, and it helps Brad keep tabs on runners for safety. More volunteers offer water, snacks, and of course, words of encouragement. Got water on your left, keep fuel on your right, four miles to the next aid station. 
Many of the volunteers are runners themselves and said it helps them know what runners need. For example, one of today's volunteers, Lynn Belmore, ran her first trail race last year with NAR runners. An aid station in that race left such a positive impression on Lynn that she felt compelled to volunteer herself. Another volunteer, Erin Meyer, has been running and racing for years and started volunteering several years ago as a way to give back. And Elizabeth Locke and her family moved to the area a few years ago. She's a runner, her husband is a runner, and their three sons are also runners. They started volunteering because they were already at the races, and it's a way to stay busy while waiting for the family members who are racing, and a way to meet community. And the boys like it. Um, we like them to be able to see that they can get involved and help out wherever they can. Yeah. Are you still recording? I am. After the break, we meet up with Brad at the finish line. Support for the diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. With the race well in motion, Brad builds the finish line. He sets the arch, hangs the banners, and generally makes sure that there's a bright celebratory environment for runners to come back to. I'm always at the start finish. I'm the easy to find, easy to contact person. And then Nick gets to be the one who goes out on course and sees things, sees the action of the race unfold. Checks in on the aid stations, <laughs> fixes course markings if they ever need to be. And um, between the two of us, we get to manage the entire race together. Brad is the finish line announcer, and he takes particular pride in that. Our first half marathoner, I see the pink bib. Number 47, making his way, that's Michael Gingrich from Fort Collins. He is the world record holder for the longest time spent balancing a pineapple on his head while riding a unicycle up a mountain. <laughs> and half marathon champion. Unofficial time right around 1.39. We'll get that firmed up for you here in just a second. After his first season of race directing, Brad found it a little boring to just read 300 names and times. So we started working in where people were from and occasionally making a joke or two. The following year, he added an optional field in the registration form to share a fun fact about yourself. One of my personal feelings is 
every runner at every race deserves to hear their name shouted out to the world when they cross that finish line. And I'm the one to do it at our races. It just provides such a fuller picture of people who aren't just runners out there, but, you know, they have quirks and hobbies and families, which, you know, but they put the details in there and they're things they're proud of and that they want to share with the community. And I get to be the one to do that broader sharing. To help Brad call out these names and fun facts while the runners cross the finish line, he has several volunteers calling out the bib numbers in advance. One of these spotters is Robert Stein. He's visiting from Chicago to watch his son Noah run today's marathon. And Robert wanted to be useful, so he reached out to Brad to see if he could help. Of course, Brad said yes. Another spotter is Fred X. He's standing along the trail about 75 feet from the finish. Number one, two, five. One, two, five. During a quick break between runners, I asked Fred why he gets involved with NAR. Because I've run a lot of these races, and these guys in particular have some of the best support and best finish line anywhere. And I've run the races, and I like helping out at the races, too. And I wish more runners would actually volunteer at races because we gain empathy for what each other is going through through this. That uh, working a race is not easy either, uh, and both are important. And if it wasn't already clear, Fred also really enjoys supporting the runners. It puts smiles on faces, right? You watch people come in, you cheer them in, and you watch them just, they're so happy to be done. Often they'll have family and friends up here and you watch the big reunion play out over and over and over through the day. It's super fun. It's really rewarding. And just like the aid stations, Brad has a high standard for the finish line area and barbecue. Another team manages food and drinks to ensure no one goes home hungry. Especially in nice weather, the finish line at a race is just the coolest place to hang out. You have people full of endorphins. You have their family and friends. And everyone is just sitting out in this park on a nice day. Amazing things are happening. Cheers are breaking out at the finish line every few minutes. And that day wouldn't be complete without good food. So we always make sure we have vegetarian, vegan options, multiple options. We make sure we have non-alcoholic beer and plenty of non-alcoholic options, gluten-free, dairy-free. We're working off of a grill and a field, so you know we can't be as perfect as the kitchen but we're doing our absolute best to make sure that everyone can celebrate with the food. If race day is the culmination of all Brad's hard work, the finish line is the punctuation. It embodies so much of what Brad enjoys about race directing, it's really quite magical to see. I love putting on races, in part because it gives other people the opportunity to experience the kind of things that I've experienced, the joys of going further than you ever thought you could or faster than you thought you could, or just hanging out with friends in a park all day where there's not distractions. It's, it's a day of simplicity and enjoyment, a little bit of suffering. And it seems to me that all of this positivity trickles down to the runners themselves. It's sort of like the airport scene in the movie Love, actually. People are reunited, hugging, kissing, holding up signs. Some are crying. The race scene just has more dirt and sweat. 
When half marathoner Sarah Mamoreau approached the finish, she was greeted by her two sisters, her mother, and her two nieces. Sarah's five-year-old niece was so excited that she ran onto the course with arms wide open. So Sarah picked her up and carried her across the finish. Joey Prisbilla is a local PT who also ran the half marathon. He was greeted at the finish by his wife, their two-year-old son, and his parents. And of course, Robert from Chicago reunited with his son Noah at the finish with a big smile and a hug. I could feel a palpable runner's high at the finish. I chatted briefly with David Roche, who had just set a new course record for the marathon. David is a pretty well-known runner, coach, and podcast host here in Colorado. The most fun thing about racing for me is getting to see everyone at aid stations and just be a part of the community. It makes me feel a part of something bigger. So especially at races like NAR Runners, it's so much love. And for me, I don't even get tired usually when I come through aid stations because it's like injection of love, injection of love. And so I hope I can display that amount of gratitude back at people. Sometimes I'm breathing a little too hard, but usually I think I'm pretty good at telling everyone how much I love them for being there. I waited at the finish line until the last runners came in around 4 p.m. Most were smiling, some were swearing, some finished with a partner, some finished alone. To ensure every runner has a positive experience, Brad has another rule. I have been the last finisher in a race before, and to me, the worst feeling in the world is to come in to a finish line to see things already half-packed up, all that's left is some cold food that they're just waiting to clean up. Every finisher deserves the same level of treatment. And so my rule um, at our races is we don't start packing until everyone arrives. Because even catching a glimpse of packing going on, in my experience, is so disheartening. You're not, you know, looking at your watches waiting to get out of there. No, there's finishers out there. They're working just as hard as everyone else, and they've been working as hard for longer than everyone else. And so you keep the party going. You keep the race there. You keep everything. So when they arrive, they get as great of an experience, hopefully, as the first finisher and everyone in between. But once they've got their food, once they've been celebrated and had time to relax and are heading out, then you go sleep. No. Then you start packing up. Mm-hmm. And that is the worst part of a race because you have been extroverting all day. You've been working on adrenaline and endorphins and going high energy for five, nine, 18 hours. And you have to get everything out of there by dark. My personal strategy with post-race packing is... Space efficiency is the only thing that matters. Put it in the trucks, put it in the trailer. Don't worry about putting like things together. Don't worry about cleaning, sorting, folding nicely. Just throw it in there. As long as there's space for everything, it will get sorted out once you've had a chance to sleep. And it leads to some colossal messes, but it is my favorite policy because it works. After the race, Brad gets the perishable items back to the Naraj and turns his focus to the race results. 
His goal is to always have results available online within 24 hours of the last finisher coming in. But it's probably no surprise he often gets the results posted before he goes to bed or very first thing in the morning after waking up. Then two days after, you unpack that trailer, pull everything out, count it, organize it, put it in the bin that it's supposed to be in, put things where they belong, sort out recycling, trash, get those to the proper places, and wash things. Dishes, tables, stoves. I would say washing is the biggest part of post-race, even more than unpacking. As I reflect on race day, it sort of feels like this little microcosm of the best parts of us. This experience of life can feel really hard sometimes, and the truth is, it is hard. We all have challenges either by choice through running a trail marathon or by chance. So whether it's running a race or facing a different kind of challenge that asks us to dig deep, sometimes it only feels possible with a little help and to remember that we can do hard things together. I think most people have the experience where times where you feel you can do it and times where you feel you can't and the gray areas that dominate in between. The race environment gives that can-do energy, that being at a race, being with all these wonderful people, giving of their time, the folks reaching their limits, there's something about it that just, you can call it motivation, you can call it optimism, but it's it just gives me that feeling that whatever needs done can be done and I can be a part of it. It takes a lot of work to make days like this happen. And in the end, maybe race day matters because being together matters. Some of my happiest memories on a trail are when I get to share them with other people. And so by putting on races, we're creating focal points where people know that there's going to be a community, there's going to be friends out there, friends that they know, friends they haven't met yet, all achieving the same thing and that they're sharing the day with. I'm doing something to both make a living and feed myself. And I mean more than just put food on the table, but nurture emotionally, spiritually. Yeah, running does that for me. Thank you, Brad, for sharing your story and for all the work you do. People appreciate you. Brad also had a little bit of, well, maybe a little nudge for us all. Earn your dirt. Trails and parks don't happen in a vacuum. Staffing levels of government on pretty much any level barely provide for basic maintenance of the trails out there. And the folks who do that are absolutely fantastic and go above and beyond but building new trails or even maintaining the existing ones doesn't happen without volunteers. There are so many organizations, so many ways to get out there and give back, spend four hours, eight hours, once a year, twice a year, whatever folks can do. Every little bit goes into making our trails the awesome community bit that we have. And I took Brad's suggestion to heart. and I just signed up to volunteer at a mountain bike trail race this summer. 
Look, our stories come from you. You make the show possible, whether that's through a story suggestion or the Diaries Plus. If you have an idea for a show or a guest or a story, you can visit our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. There's a submission form there. Please, don't hesitate to reach out. Music today from Joanna Catcher, Graham Barton, Faring, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the Artists, Track Club, or Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find all the links to the artists on our website. This episode was produced, written, and reported by Ashley Langholtz with editing by Andrew Burton. Illustration by Walker Cahal. Becca Call is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to The Dirtbrag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>